You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Hey everyone, thanks for tuning in to the 444th episode of our Civil War podcast. I'm Rich. And I'm Tracy. Hello y'all. Welcome to the podcast. With this show, we're going to pick right back up with our look at what happened in 1863. We looked at June and got a start on July last time. So with this episode, we'll begin with, yes, you guessed it, the rest of July. On Friday, July 10th, the Federals begin another attempt to get at Charleston, South Carolina. Supported by naval guns and also by Federal artillery on Folly Island, Union infantry commanded by Brigadier General George Crockett Strong land on the south end of Morris Island, on the south side of the mouth of Charleston Harbor. Their objective is Battery Wagner, one of the harbor's main defensive strong points. The first federal assault on Wagner on July 11th will be unsuccessful. Within a week, with considerable reinforcements, the Yankees will try again. On July 11th, draft officers begin drawing names in heavily Democratic New York City, where sentiment against emancipation and conscription runs high. This is especially the case among hard-scrabble Irish workers who are troubled and angered by low wages and high unemployment and live with their families in overcrowded tenements that are seedbeds of crime and disease. Many Irishmen are still seething with resentment at being replaced by black stevedores during a bitter longshoremen's strike in June, and they worry about the same thing happening if they're drafted since at this time, black men aren't considered citizens and thus aren't eligible for the draft. In addition to the fear of losing their jobs to blacks, they are angry that the $300 fee for the government requires for legally evading the draft is, for the vast majority of Irish laborers, an impossible amount to raise. Today's draft lottery goes smoothly, but the following day, a Sunday, Crowds of angry people, many of them fueled by cheap liquor, will plot to stop the drawings. On July 13th, Abraham Lincoln composes a note to Ulysses S. Grant, quote, as a grateful acknowledgement for the almost inestimable service you have done the country. Lincoln goes on to make a small confession. He thought that once Grant got below Vicksburg, he should have continued on down the Mississippi River to link up with Nathaniel Banks, 
and when Grant instead crossed his army to the east bank of the river and set off into the interior of Mississippi to approach Vicksburg from the south and east, Lincoln thought Grant had made a bad decision. I feared it was a mistake, Lincoln tells Grant, and then writes, I now wish to make the personal acknowledgement that you were right and I was wrong. From July 13th to 17th, New York City erupts into bloody mob violence. The uprising begins that Monday with thousands of people skipping work to protest outside the draft office on 3rd Avenue. Someone hurls a stone through an office window. Someone else fires a pistol. And the protest transforms into a riot. Initially led by members of a company of firemen, one of whom has just been drafted. Surging into the office, the rioters smash everything inside. The draft officials barely escape with their lives as the mob sets fire to the building, imperiling hundreds of people who live on the floors above. Outside, as the firemen stand by and watch the building burn, rioters cut telegraph wires and attack the small force of police and soldiers that city authorities muster to try to stop them. The mob's fury builds and widens to include Republicans, soldiers, the wealthy, and especially black people and the businesses that employ them. Harper's Weekly will report, quote, One of the first victims to the insane fury of the rioters was a Negro cartman residing in Carmine Street. He was beaten, hanged, and set afire. Colonel Henry O'Brien of the 11th New York Infantry is another victim, beaten, shot, and pummeled with stones as he is dragged through the streets before he finally dies. The mob besieges Horace Greeley in the offices of the New York Tribune, setting the first floor on fire. The rioters also attack the headquarters of the New York Times, but are turned away by borrowed Gatling guns. The mob loots and burns the four-story colored orphan asylum, even as its staff and 233 children escape to safety. Federal troops fresh from the Battle of Gettysburg arrive in the city and help restore order. The draft is temporarily suspended in New York City as Washington sends in more troops and the human cost of the violence becomes clear. Hundreds have been injured and at least 105 people, including 11 blacks and 8 soldiers, have been killed. On July 16th, halfway around the world, in the Straits of Shimono Sekai, Japan, USS Wyoming, on patrol against Confederate commerce raiders, emerges victorious from a battle with the makeshift fleet of a Japanese warlord who is intent on driving foreigners from those well-traveled waters. This marks the first U.S. naval engagement with Japanese forces since Commodore Matthew Perry and his warships were instrumental in opening Japan to American and European vessels in 1854. After Wyoming's victory, the situation will remain volatile. President Lincoln will state in his December message to Congress, quote, Our relations with Japan have been brought into serious jeopardy through the perverse opposition of the hereditary aristocracy of the empire to the enlightened policy designed to bring the country into the Society of Nations. 
It is hoped, although not with entire confidence, that these difficulties may be peacefully overcome. On Saturday, July 18th, 6,000 Union soldiers, commanded by Brigadier General Truman Seymour, make a frontal assault on the formidable Battery Wagner on Morris Island in Charleston Harbor. Leading the attack is the 54th Massachusetts, a black regiment commanded by Colonel Robert Gould Shaw. Searching forward through withering enemy fire, the men of the 54th managed to gain a tenuous toehold atop Wagner's parapet, but neither they nor any of Seymour's other regiments can crack the Confederate defenses, and the Federal attack is repulsed with heavy losses. Sergeant Lewis Douglas, son of famed abolitionist Frederick Douglas, will write to his future wife, Amelia, telling her, quote, Men fell all around me. A shell would explode in clear space. Our men would close up again, but it was no use. The 54th Massachusetts suffered 272 casualties in the assault, including Colonel Shaw, who was killed. Later, when the Federals attempt to retrieve Shaw's remains, they are told by the rebels that they'd buried him with the bodies of 20 of his black soldiers piled on top of him. It's intended as an insult, but when Shaw's father is given the news, he says he can think of no more fitting place for his son to be buried than with the men he'd led into battle. On July 30th, grappling with the problem of how to ensure the safety of black soldiers and their white officers captured by Confederates, Abraham Lincoln states there will be an eye-for-an-eye policy. Quote, the government of the United States will give the same protection to all of its soldiers, and if the enemy shall sell or enslave anyone because of his color, the offense shall be punished by retaliation upon the enemy's prisoners in our possession. It is therefore ordered that for every soldier of the United States killed in violation of the laws of war, a rebel soldier shall be executed, and for every one enslaved by the enemy or sold into slavery, a rebel soldier shall be placed at hard labor on the public works. But Lincoln's eye-for-an-eye order is unacceptable to many and impractical to enforce, so the policy will never be carried out. The problem, however, will remain. After the failed assault on Battery Wagner, Lewis Douglas wrote to Amelia, proudly declaring, quote, This regiment has established its reputation as a fighting regiment. I wish we had a hundred thousand colored troops. We would put an end to this war. On August 10th, Lewis's father, Frederick Douglas, meets with Abraham Lincoln and vehemently protests the disparity of pay between white and black soldiers a policy in violation of assurances originally made to recruits. In his post-war autobiography, Douglas reports that the president responded that in view of the prevailing racial prejudice, quote, the fact that they were not to receive the same pay as white soldiers seemed a necessary concession to smooth the way to their employment at all as soldiers, but they ultimately would receive the same. However, given past broken promises and the present pressing needs of their families, 
ultimately isn't a satisfactory time frame for the black soldiers who are still refusing to accept any pay until the discriminatory policy is reversed. On August 14th in Missouri, which is the scene of vicious guerrilla warfare, another tragic chapter in that saga begins with a terrible accident when five women, the wives and sisters of men fighting as rebel bushwhackers, are killed in the collapse of a Kansas City building in which federal authorities have jailed them. Enraged at the deaths of their womenfolk and determined to exact vengeance, scattered bands of bushwhackers come together until more than 400 guerrillas have assembled under the command of William Quantrill. On Wednesday, August 19th, with 6,000 federal troops now on hand, the draft, which had been suspended after the July riots, now resumes in New York City. On Friday, August 21st, staff officer and map maker Jedediah Hotchkiss, serving in the Army of Northern Virginia, writes in his diary, quote, This is a fast day proclaimed by the President of the Confederate States and has been observed as a Sabbath in the camp. Mr. Lacey preached at our headquarters and nearly a thousand soldiers and many officers came to hear him. He gave us a noble discourse in which he handled unsparingly our sins as an army and people, but held out that God must be on our side because we are in the right as proven by our deeds and our enemies had shown themselves cruel and bloodthirsty. General Lee, I noticed, spoke to each lady there and to all the children. Also in August, in the north, Louisa May Alcott, previously a writer of undistinguished fairy tales and short stories, established her literary reputation with the publication of Hospital Sketches, which is a fictionalized account of the six weeks she served as a nurse in a Washington hospital until illness forced her to leave. One passage reads, There they were, our brave boys, as the papers justly call them, the sight of several stretchers, each with its legless, armless, or desperately wounded occupant, entering my ward, admonished me that I was there to work, not to wonder or weep. So I corked up my feelings and returned to the path of duty, which was rather a hard road to travel just then. On August 21st, issuing orders to kill every male and burn every house, William Quantrill leads a force of over 400 Confederate guerrillas in an attack on the free soil town of Lawrence in eastern Kansas, where they murder more than 180 men and boys and burn 185 buildings before escaping back to Missouri. This act of vengeance will beget vengeance. The Lawrence Massacre so enrages the area's federal commander, General Thomas Ewing, that on August 25th he will issue General Orders No. 11, under which Union forces will sweep four western Missouri counties clear of all but the most certainly loyal inhabitants, in the process turning more than 10,000 other Missourians out onto the roads as refugees with only the clothes and belongings they can carry. The bitterness this unhappy episode inspires will last long after the war. 
On August 29th, the third of the Confederacy's experimental submarines, H.L. Hunley, named after the businessman and inventor who is financing its development, sinks in Charleston Harbor when it's swamped by the wake of a passing vessel as it maneuvers on the surface with an open hatch. Five crewmen are lost, three survive. Unlike its two predecessors, Hunley will be recovered and efforts will continue to try to develop it so it can be deployed in combat against the enemy. On August 30th, Union soldier David Lane, serving in a Michigan regiment, complains in his diary, Oh, these vexatious postal delays. They are the bane of my life. I wonder if postmasters are human beings with live hearts inside their jackets. End quote. You see, mail is vital to Lane and to hundreds of thousands of other soldiers on both sides of the lines. To receive a letter from home is almost always a morale booster for the men in the armies. But bad news, or no news from home, can cause worry and stress, especially for Confederate soldiers whose families are in the path of federal advances. Lieutenant James Billingsley Mitchell will write to his mother in Alabama in October, asking, Why don't someone from home write to me? I have not received a line since I left Chattanooga. I am beginning to fear the Yankees have come up, and there's been a battle at home, as there seems to be a perfect cessation of all communication. You must not forget that I am always as anxious to hear from home as you are to hear from me. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. On September 2nd, Ambrose Burnside and his small army of the Ohio occupies Knoxville, fulfilling Abraham Lincoln's two-year dream of liberating Unionist East Tennessee. Knoxville was evacuated by the Confederates when the division occupying the town headed toward Chattanooga to join Braxton Bragg. 
Meanwhile, William Rosecrans, having bested Bragg in the Tullahoma campaign, moves the Army of the Cumberland toward strategically important Chattanooga in the southeast corner of the Volunteer State. U.S. Ambassador to Great Britain, Charles Francis Adams, writes a stern warning to the British Foreign Minister, Lord John Russell, on September 5th about what have come to be called the Laird Rams. Built by the British company John Laird & Sons, the powerful vessels were contracted for by James Bullock, the Confederacy's naval agent in England. British law officers, however, have been claiming that they have no evidence the ships are being built for the Confederacy, and thus they cannot seize them as violations of British neutrality. But Adams knows better. What he doesn't know is that two days before his warning to Russell, the foreign minister decided to seize the two vessels, thus avoiding a diplomatic crisis with the United States. The rams will eventually be commissioned in the British Navy. On September 6th, in South Carolina, Confederates vacate Battery Wagner after intensive naval bombardment and in anticipation of an imminent Federal infantry assault. The first regiment of Union troops to move into the abandoned fort will be the 54th Massachusetts. Back in Tennessee, as the Confederate division that recently withdrew from Knoxville arrives in Chattanooga, joining more than 10,000 other reinforcements that have arrived from Mississippi, Braxton Bragg, on September 8th, decides to evacuate Chattanooga. He is leery of becoming trapped there should Rosecrans occupy the surrounding mountains. The next day, after federal troops occupy the town without a fight, a despondent Jefferson Davis declares, We are now at the darkest hour of our political existence. Also on September 8th, at Sabine Pass on the Texas-Louisiana border, Confederates manning a small fort employ deadly accurate artillery fire and hand an embarrassing defeat to a Federal Army Navy expedition comprising four gunboats and seven troop transports. Though a minor victory, the action provides a morale boost to the Confederacy. Jefferson Davis will later refer to it as the Thermopylae of the Civil War. On September 9th, in Raleigh, North Carolina, Confederate soldiers plundered the offices of a newspaper, the North Carolina Standard. The paper's publisher, William H. Holden, is now considered a traitor by many Confederates after he reached the conclusion that the Confederacy can't win the war, and he has been acting on that assumption, organizing anti-war meetings and printing editorials advocating a negotiated peace with the North. That same day in Charleston Harbor, United States Marines and sailors attempt a night landing at Fort Sumter in Charleston Harbor and are repulsed with heavy casualties. The attempt fails in part because Confederates have a captured codebook from USS Keokuk, which was wrecked during an earlier assault on Charleston. Using the codebook, the rebels are able to read the flag signals sent back and forth between Union commanders during the operation's planning. In Virginia, Jefferson Davis overrides the objections of Robert E. Lee and sends General James Longstreet and two of his divisions from the Army of Northern Virginia to reinforce Braxton Bragg near Chattanooga. Because the Yankees now occupy Knoxville and Chattanooga, These 12,000 Confederate reinforcements 
are forced to take a roundabout route to reach Bragg. Only about 6,000 will arrive in time to take part in the Battle of Chickamauga. In Arkansas on September 10th, the state capital of Little Rock falls to the Federals, a loss that severely threatens the entire Confederate Trans-Mississippi, which is already cut off from the rest of the Confederacy by the fall of Vicksburg and the loss of Port Hudson and Union control of the Mississippi River along its entire length from north to south. The Confederate state government that pulls out of Little Rock ahead of the Federals will re-establish itself in the town of Washington to the southwest. Unionist Arkansans will establish their own state government early in 1864. These two opposing governments will hold sway over different sections of the state, roughly divided by the Arkansas River, for the remainder of the war. As three scattered columns of Rosecrans' Army of the Cumberland search for Braxton Bragg's Confederates in wooded and mountainous North Georgia, the Federals are facing the growing danger that Bragg will attack each of the columns in turn when they are isolated and vulnerable. On September 12th, Union Brigadier General John Beatty writes in his diary, quote, The roads up and down the mountains are extremely bad and our progress has therefore been slow, and the march here a tedious one. The boys have had no time to rest during the day and have done much night work, but they hold up well. Six days later, as the federal columns converge and Beatty moves his men up to a position on Chickamauga Creek, he will note, quote, Occasional shots along the line indicated that the enemy was in our immediate front. The next day, the 19th, and also the next, the 20th, the bloodiest battle of the war in the Western Theater takes place in the wooded terrain near Chickamauga Creek in North Georgia, some 12 miles south of Chattanooga, as 66,000 Confederates, led by Braxton Bragg, clash with 60,000 Federals of William Rosecrans' Army of the Cumberland. The Federals hold their own through the first day of bitter combat, but midway through day two, the rebels exploit a gap in the Union line and sunder Rosecrans' army in two. The Confederates push most of the Yankees on the southern part of the battlefield and Rosecrans himself into a full-scale retreat toward Chattanooga. Throughout the battle, Major General George Thomas has held the Federal left. As the Confederates crack open the Union line, Thomas and his men assisted by reinforcements led by Gordon Granger, continue to hold out on Horseshoe Ridge, saving the army from complete disaster. Thomas doesn't withdraw from the field until nightfall. His defensive stand earns him the nickname Rock of Chickamauga. The butcher's bill at Chickamauga will exceed 34,000 Federal and Confederate soldiers killed, wounded or missing. Braxton Bragg doesn't believe his battered army is in any shape to closely pursue the retreating enemy. After the Yankees reach Chattanooga and set up strong defensive lines there, Bragg has his force occupy the surrounding heights, including Lookout Mountain and Missionary Ridge, thereby cutting the main federal supply line into the town. Three days after the end of the fighting at Chickamauga, Abraham Lincoln attends a nighttime meeting at the War Department, 
with Secretary of War Edwin Stanton and General-in-Chief Henry Halleck. The news that William Rosecrans left the battlefield while fighting still raged is not well received in Washington. When Old Rosie sends a long message giving the reasons for his defeat at Chickamauga, Stanton grumbles, I know the reasons well enough. Rosecrans ran away from his fighting men and did not stop for 13 miles. With the Army of the Cumberland now, for all intents and purposes, trapped at Chattanooga, Lincoln, Stanton, and Halleck decide they must send reinforcements if the place is to be held. Their decision sets in motion the largest movement of troops by rail during the war. Performing administrative and logistical miracles, Stanton organizes the immediate transport by rail of more than 20,000 men from the 11th and 12th Corps of the Army of the Potomac. The force will be commanded by Major General Joseph Hooker, who has remained on active duty even after his removal from command before the Battle of Gettysburg. The Union reinforcements will complete the 1,200-mile journey to the vicinity of Chattanooga within 11 days. On September 24th, Abraham Lincoln writes to his wife Mary, who is currently staying at the Fifth Avenue Hotel in New York City, telling her, quote, We now have a tolerably accurate summing up of the late battle between Rosecrans and Bragg. End quote. Lincoln then breaks the sad news to Mary that one of the Confederate generals reported killed at Chickamauga is her brother in law, Benjamin Hardin Helm who was shot in the chest while leading a brigade during the fighting. This sad news adds to the growing burden of grief pressing upon Kentucky-born Mary and her family as three of her brothers had perished fighting for the Confederacy, and now her sister Emily's husband has been killed. The news is particularly heartbreaking for Abraham, who had personally offered Helm a position in the Union Army in a vain attempt to keep him from siding with the Confederacy. The president's friend, Judge David Davis, will recall after the war, I never saw Mr. Lincoln more moved than when he heard that his young brother-in-law, Ben Hardin Helm, had been killed. I saw how grief-stricken he was, so I closed the door and left him alone. That means it's time for this episode's book recommendation, and our recommendation this time is Abraham and Mary Lincoln by Kenneth J. Winkle. You know, the Lincolns are one of the more interesting stories connected to the Civil War. What Winkle says was, quote, a fascinating and enigmatic marriage. And he does a fine job in just 125 pages or so of giving us a picture of this complicated partnership between Abraham and Mary. Anyway, this is one of the titles in the Southern Illinois University Press's Concise Lincoln Library. So there you go. You can find a list of all of our book recommendations if you head over to the podcast website at www.civilwarpodcast.org. Also at the website, you can find information on joining the Strawfoot Brigade over on Patreon and supporting the podcast in that way, just like Alex M., Mark, and Mike did this past week. Thanks, guys. And thanks to all of you for listening to this episode of the podcast. Tracy and I do hope that you'll join us again next time, but until then, take care. Thanks, everyone. Bye. Bye.